This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Test, 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 test. Test, 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 test. Okay, so we're back. Okay, so I have been watching Outlander. Yes. Because it's porn light. And I... Are you in love with Jamie? Of course I am. Are you in love with him? weird because I'm in love with him, but I actually... I feel like he knows it and we have something going on. (laughs) You know what I do if I'm really into someone? This is so fucked up. There's, I will look at who they dated and be like, am I sort of their type? The hard thing about getting older is you realize I'm less and less people's type. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm getting older and wiser. No one's into that. No one's into it. That's all. You no, need to I'm... put an ad in the personal. <laughs> Comely. Triflers need not apply. Triflers need not apply. Should I put that on apply. my dating app? Triflers I don't know. need not apply. Aren't you kind of into triflers? <laughs> That's my problem. <laughs> I need to, like, tell Carrie triflers need not apply. Carrie. Curry. Curry. Stop. Um, I'm watching Downtown Abbey. I do love a Downtown Abbey. What season are you on? I think four just begun. I'll tell you what happened, though. Spencer from downstairs, one of my vigs, Dumbledore'd it for me, which no. is really rude. I was like, Spencer from downstairs, I was like, who is he? Is he a butler? Like <laughs> Spencer from downstairs. He's about to become a butler. <laughs> I thought you meant like... <laughs> You're right. I should treat Adam and Spencer like we live in downtown Abbey, since they're downstairs. That's really good. You want to know, do you want to see my impression of downtown, Ab- downtown Abbey? Just call it downtown. Curicroly. <laughs> it's good, right? Really, really powerful. Curicroly. Mother. She has a very weird... <laughs> yeah. It's very pinched. Oh, I love it. Mary. Mary. <laughs> Smaller lips. Mary. I can't do it. It's Mary. Well, I was telling her one day, I said, Mary. Yeah. It's like, I love it. I actually really, Maggie Smith is a Gemini. So you, one of your vigs ruined it, but where are you at in season four? It The Dumbledore incident just took place. Sh- last night, shattered. No. I went to bed shattered. Since I've seen you, I've watched all of Emily in Paris. And that's where I learned I can go to any foreign country and not speak the language. Oh, I um I wouldn't try it. I don't know, it worked for her. 
And she solved she solved all their business woes. Oh, that sounds like the show I just watched, which was called The Flight Attendant and was excellent. It's a yeah, that I've heard is good. Oh, you haven't seen it? You no. would love it because it's murder, but it's fun and poppy and like It's murder easy. but fun. It's yeah. It's See, a, I want porn but not really porn. Yeah. Or do I want it's porn? It's murder I don't know. but not. It's like it's skirting the line there. Okay. Speaking of which, you're listening to Truly Darkly, darkly green I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And Koa has a brother, and it's so cute. He's really good with him. Can I say what he said to him the other day? Please. So I gave Koa a little jar of vanilla yogurt, um, vanilla-flavored, like, Noosa. Yeah. Which is... That's bougie. Really nice yogurt. That's and really... My mom loves it. She won't share, share it with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... I gave it to Koa. Well, I think I thought it had gone bad. So I was like, I don't want this. It's past expiration. I'll give it to Koa. Um, so I gave it to Koa. And he, I really love he had a couple of bites. And he turned to Griffin and he goes, one day when you are older, you will eat this. It will blow your mind to pieces. I love him. And I was like, what a recommendation. Like I love him Nusa, so much. Call me. Nusa, please sponsor. Oh my god, you know what my mom got me for the holidays? I haven't showed you this yet. What? Hold on. Folly. 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 Oh, wait, can I guess what that is? Yes. You pull that out and it's a siren? Yes. Oh, my God. I want one of those. That's so cool. Here's the thing. I shouldn't name the brand. (laughs) Don't name it. You pull it out and it makes the loudest noise possible. And it's something really good to carry, like, if you're walking to the subway at night. I think I want to keep one bedside. And my theory on that is that I've been thinking about when I get scared at night, I've been thinking, like, I wish I had a weapon. I'm too scared to own a gun. And I'm even too scared to put a knife or a hammer in my bedside well, because, so kids. A, like... I have kids, but B, there's too many sleepwalky stories. Yeah, I'm not doing it. Of people, like, in a dream murdering people that I'm so scared that in, <laughs> in my sleep I would kill everyone that I'm, like, keep the weapons away. But I think if you really did have someone break into your home and you basically have your own house alarm next to you where yeah. you're like, I'm just going to blow this alarm. I think that's a really I safe like, way to deal with that problem. I feel like it was a gift from my mom for her. Yeah, she'll feel better. She definitely feels. She's like, that's I like it when you're gift, walking. That's a actually. Yeah, and it wasn't too much. So, like, you just pull, pull and they it. say to test it. I won't do it because we have a little baby in this house. But when we're outside one time, I should show you. And there's a light on it that goes, and it comes with this keychain. So... So oh, like that's when, so when I'm like great. riding my bike, I can just like or yeah, put it in my pocket. I've been feeling a little bit. I get a little uh, weird at night if I hear any noises, and I live in an old house that makes a lot, a lot of, of noises. noises. And Spencer and Adam go upstate and then come back down, and I don't always know their schedule. So sometimes I hear a noise, and I'm like, "Are they home? Are they not home?" And I'm sleeping alone in the bed with Griff. Yeah, what are your sleeping arrangements these days? So I'm in. I'm in the king bed with Griffin, and it's just the two of us. By the way, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to, I guess, sleep with sleep your baby. Bed, yeah. But I will say that in a king bed, and I'm not, I don't roll over. 
Right. Like, if I fall asleep on my right side, I wake up on my right side. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you won't keep weapons by your bed, but you're like, no, I'll do the Because you're like, <laughs> no, you don't trust yourself to sleepwalk. <laughs> like, I, I probably will sleepwalk and murder everyone, but, but I won't I roll on top roll of my over. baby. <laughs> True. True story. Well, it's just me and the baby in a king bed, so yeah. I have to roll across the whole bed. Like, I'd have to, like... Do a bunch of rolls. And he's not rolling over and yet. And then if I rolled on him, he would cry. Like, he's <laughs> not going to be like, this is annoying. I guess I'm going to die now. We should talk about the computer situation, but that's a whole later. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sleeping. And then we got um, a trundle bed for Koa. I love, I had a trundle bed growing up. Those it's, were bomb. It's really cool. It's gray velvet. Wait, I want to see it. Oh, it's really nice. And so Matt and Koa sleep in Koa's room in the oh trundle bed. Matt sleeps on the trundle? Yes. And Koa's he sleeps on the lower sh- level, which is like the shittier mattress. Yeah. And Koa sleeps up top on like the nice mattress. <laughs> and Koa oh. sometimes gets out of bed and gets in the tiny mattress with Matt. So they I mean, both sleep Koa's on the shitty mattress. I have a hard time leaving that. Look, here's my thing. I thought about that a lot. I'm, we're making uh, so many mistakes along oh, the way. Oh, I think that's parenting, baby. However, I also think, like, I cannot believe looking at Griff right now and being like, in three years, you're going to be Koa. Like, that's fast, how fast they grow up. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. If they want to, like, sleep with us for a while, I just don't care. Like, right. I kind of think it's going to go by so quickly. And... I'm more anxious about the time when they're like, don't touch me. Don't talk to me. (laughs) Like, I have a lot of anxiety about that. So I'm sort of like, why don't you just let them do whatever? And the thing is, our bedroom connects to their bedroom. Right. So when they share a room, they can come in our room at night if they want. And it feels like, why am I going to have a whole argument that keeps me awake about them getting back in their bed? Like, who cares? Who cares? Well, that's really funny. You know who Matt reminds me of? Ed Norton. Larry. <laughs> Larry? My dad? The mattress on the floor. It just sounds awfully familiar. Oh, it's get, I'm prepping him for his, when he, yeah, he's going to be the next Larry Posner where we're like, go sleep on a mattress in the basement. I love when we do stories of torture. We're like, and they had a mattress in the basement. And it's You're like, always like, like Larry. <laughs> Exactly. Larry, I hope you're enjoying the bike ride. If you guys are Patreon subscribers... Um, are we doing that episode where we're going to ask him questions I'm about John I'm doing that episode. It'll maybe be out, though, by the time this episode's out. I'm going to visit him this month, and I'm going to record it while I'm there. No, that's going to come out next month, because this is going to be the second week in February. So this is, oh, or this so is Valentine's Day. I think this is our Valentine's Day app. Oh, I would have picked... Oh, I did pick a really good love story. Speaking of which, we probably should go because you have a huge story. So if you were a Patreon subscriber, not only are you getting um, an extra episode a month, but you're also getting an interview with Larry Posner. um, One of many. Hopefully one of a series. Hopefully one of a series about uh, Jean Benet. Yeah. Also, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you took a poll this week where I told you that I um, went into a case where it sort of ended up being I had so many notes I was like this is going to take up a whole episode and I asked the dear readers should I pare down my notes give you the gist of it and make it a regular episode or should I just double down and talk as long as I want and make it a whole episode and not feel bad about it everybody said do a shallow deep dive aka 
a full app. Don't pare down the notes. When I told Carrie this, she was like, you know what? I'm still going to do a, a story. Little story. I don't Because wanna... we don't want you to ever feel like we're... We're changing the situation. I mean, we changed it for the holiday, but we both had research. I don't want you... I Honestly, it's my guilt. I don't want to feel like I'm not pulling my weight here. Yeah, I was hoping Carrie wasn't going to talk at all for this episode, <laughs> but unfortunately she is. That's just now we're right. Okay. The <laughs> I reason... tried to silence her to no and avail. I will not be silenced. The story that I'm going to do for my non-silencing, is actually based on... So I read... I don't know. Has any, have you read Tana French? I am reading a Tana French right now. No way. Which one? The Witchum. <gasps> Shut up. I read that and my book, my story is based on that. How Wait. far into it are you? Are you doing Bella? Yeah. So am I. That's my mini. So us telling Matt... <laughs> Didn't work? Him. You told him? <laughs> Let's call him in here. Matt. I text him. Hold on. I just texted him. Come in here. I think we should confront him on that on the podcast. Wait. So wait. Just to up. be I clear. Said, I want to make sure. Bella in the Witch Elm. Yes. Uh, that's my episode for the mini. Shut up. What did I say? I said I did. I said Witch Elm Bella, but I spelled it W-H-I-C-H. So maybe there was. I, I said, let me look at my text to him. Um, Matt. We need to talk to you a minute on the podcast. Do you have a minute? Sure. Um. So, dear readers, just so you know, Carrie and I, to make sure we never double up on the same topic. we've done that before. We both text Matt what topics we're doing. And this week we had to text him what we were doing for a long topic, but also what we were doing for the mini that goes out to Patreon. And my mini was Bella and the Witch Elm, which I researched and Carrie's topic for this episode is... Bell on the Witch Elm. <laughs> so we're about to see what he has to say for himself. He's our, he's our unpaid intern. Can, can you come in? Sure, you can come in. Hey, Koa. Looks like the answer is yes, it can come in. With but you've everyone. got a sad baby. Yeah. So, All right, we have a bone to pick with you to our unpaid intern, Mr. Matt McCroskey. Our unpaid intern, Matt McCroskey, is here to answer to us. We just realized that we have the same topic. <laughs> no. <laughs> We've both done research on Bella and the Witch Elm. What? <laughs> no, guys. That's so funny. I even double-checked this week. I think because I spelled mine wrong. I spelled mine W-H-I-C-H. You're kidding me. This is hilarious. (laughs) Can you sit next to me? Um, Dear readers, my whole family's in here now. I can't pick you up. Here, do you need help? Let me get him. I guess I don't need to check. Oh, boy. (laughs) I had one job. I had one job. (laughs) I don't know. You are like, you are taking care (laughs) of. He had one job. He says, well, rocking a baby and holding Koa. I can't believe this, guys. I'm actually totally embarrassed. Really? Oh my gosh, you do not be no, embarrassed. Is, well, well we're, we've decided to demote you. We've demoted you. We're <laughs> From unpaid intern <laughs> the best to babysitter? Now you're an oh, intern oh, and we're going to... Oh, um, oh, oh, oh. 
The We're going to ask you to pay us. The best is... There's, so I need to become a subscriber? You're going to be fine. The best thing about that is we're literally giving him crap while he's rocking a baby. <laughs> I've it, never felt more powerful in my life. Like, Did I, you just demote me to Patreon subscriber? <laughs> yes. Well, don't tell them it's a demotion. <laughs> you're the one that said it. Hey, Koa, do you want to say anything to people listening to the podcast? I don't. Okay. Let's go. Cool. Cool. Neither do I. Should we just go? Just kidding. Hey, right, Colin, Colin Fair, can you close the door for us? Thanks. We'll be out soon. Thanks for your help. Thanks, PA. Love you, funny guy. He didn't do it. He probably is like, I spelled it wrong. True. And I also said Bella. And I said, Are I you said, kidding me that we both wrote Bella in the Witch Elm? It's weird to write that sentence. I said you Witch Elm. I said Witch Elm Bella. Witch Elm different? I said Witch Elm Bella. I like to know that we're on the same page, but I think it's kind of cool that we're on the same page. So, are you? Where are you at in the witch elm? Wickham. Oh, it's so good. I have like a hundred more pages. Where... I know who did it. Yeah, like it's all hap- It's all unfolding right now. Oh, she's a really good writer. She is. Is this your first ton of French book? Second. I'm. So, the do you likeness... think we're twins separated at birth? Be honest. Yeah. And I, the fact that there's been that many years between us means I was really stunted or you <laughs> did not grow at all. Or I was like, I, I don't know what it looks like, but it's not. It, it doesn't feel good. We're a medical marvel, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we were just like switched at birth? E- oh. Do you think we are Tia and Tamara Maori? Sister, sister. Never knew how much I missed Okay, so... Okay, so I'm doing the story of Belle and the Witch Elm. One I'm very familiar with. Feel free to hop in. Feel yeah, free to find, hop in. If I have anything to add, I'll... You probably do, because it's. I'm going to make it quick and snappy, because you got a long up coming up. So I got this from Wikipedia, Birmingham Mail, and the History Press. Did you get any more information? No. Okay. Um, April 18th, 1943. A day that is an incredible day. In fact, it is my day. Birthday. So <laughs> there's these four little guys. Their names are Robert. Did I just mistype it? Robert Hard is his name. Robert Hard. Hart with a T. <laughs> I clearly don't look. Robert Hard. <laughs> Thomas Willets, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne. And so they were poaching or what? Egg nesting, which weird. Poaching feels really aggressive. Egg nesting was just like they were looking for birds' eggs. Yeah. And they were in Hagley Wood, Hagley, in Worcestershire, England. You're welcome. And they came across this Hagley estate. I would hate to be in the Hagley estate. <laughs> but they see this big ass witch elm. Basically, it's one of those trees with, like, a bunch of spindly um, twigs all around it. They're really stunning. So the boys, Bob Farmer gets up on the tree and he's like, this is a great spot for eggs. So he's, like, searching for eggs on this private property. And he looks down into the hole. And it's a hollowed out hole. And he sees this skull. And he's like, oh, this must be, like, an animal or a bird. So he reaches in to pick it up. And he notices human hair and taffeta in the mouth. And he realizes... This is a fucking human skull. Ah! He screams, drops it. They run. Now they're on, they're trespassing. So the four of them are little kids and they're like, okay, no, 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 no. We can't tell anyone. This will be our secret. It's like a very stand by me moment they have. And of course the little one gets home and he's like really freaked the fuck out. This guy, Thomas Willits. 
he gets home and he's like, I can't keep a secret anymore. Mom, Dad, I need to tell you we found a human body in a tree. Of course, the police are called. They come. They start investigating the scene. They find the skeleton in the witch elm. They find a shoe, a gold wedding ring, and some clothes, as well as the taffeta in her mouth, or in the skeleton's mouth. The skull has some hair on it, and it's missing some teeth, um, but the pattern of the teeth are still intact. They find a hand that's located some part away from the tree. So they exhume the body, and they bring it to this guy, Professor James Webster, who does the forensic investigation examination on it. And they conclude from the skeleton and the remnants that were left behind that it is a female body. The body is about five feet. They, it's aged between 35 and 40 years old. The body had given birth to one child. And the body was dead. <laughs> the body. The skeleton had been there for about 18 months, at least. So the time of death, based on when they found it in April 18th, 1943, the time of death was either October 1941 or before. So they think that the cause of death was suffocation because of the taffeta in the mouth. The body was placed in the tree when it was still warm because they know that the rigor mortis had not set in. Mm -hmm. They couldn't deduce exactly what she looked like so they were just trying to figure out who the hell this person was that they found in a tree and at that time it was world war it was during world war ii so a lot of people went missing around their parts you know they couldn't account for everyone who was gone and the records were not i think as well kept as they probably are today so there was no way they could like cross-reference who was missing in that area at what time so they have no idea who this woman is they did notice from the tooth pattern, although there were missing teeth, that she had a very distinct dental pattern, which is to say her teeth were pretty fucked up. Yeah, they were really <laughs> finagly. They, they were, were like really like finger teeth. Like if you were like... They were finger teeth. They were finger teeth. Just if you were it. like... They, her teeth were so spinangly, is that finangly, finger teethy, that they were like, <laughs> some dentist has got to remember these chompers. <laughs> <laughs> They were calling up all their dentist friends and they're like, hey, are you serving in the war? No, great. Do you remember this person's teeth? One and two were like crossed over. So they still didn't find anything. And in 1944, about a year later, um, all of a sudden graffiti appeared in Birmingham, England. And it said, who put Bella down the witch elm? Question mark. Dash Hagley Wood. The police are like, great, a break in the case. Mm -hmm. We know it's some chick named Bella. And then since then, this tag, who put Bella down the witch elm, started sort of picking up speed. Is that the word I want to say? Where it started appearing a lot yeah, of places. Yeah, it's not really clear if it was like uh, the same a person tag. or a copycat or exactly. whatever. It's like people were like, cool. I mean, it's a cool story. Quinn and I both researched it. So we both thought we it was it. cool. We it's get cool. it. It's cool. Of course, later on, when there's some more technology and stuff, they're like, they do a facial reconstruction. Actually, in 2018, the same person who reconstructed Richard III's face reconstructed this skeleton, reconstructed this skull. Oh, Did you really? know that? I knew that there was a skull reconstruction because I saw the picture of what they think Bella would have looked like. Yeah, I'm going to send this and to you if this is the same looks picture. kind of kooky. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit kooky. She could have used some braces. I'll be honest. She could have used some braces. Oh, God. It's scary. Her face. <laughs> they're creepy and they're kooky. The 
skull that they found on the scene has since disappeared out of evidence. No one can locate it. No one knows where that skull is mm. that was found in the witch elm. Did you hear read that? No. The skull is completely missing. Oh, and it's amazing. Out of, it's out of evidence. So, like, they've done internal research and they're just like, it disappeared into thin air. You know it's on some fun fucking black market. I actually feel like it's probably in, like, what is it? Ed and Lorraine's museum. Museum. I'm sure. Ed and Lorraine. Ed and Lorraine gave up the skull. So I'm going to go through some theories. If you have any extra to add, please let me know. So one theory is that in 1944, a sex worker from Birmingham came over to the police. And again, this is after the Bella reveal. So they now have it narrowed down of, like, this woman, Bella, is who's the person in the tree. So the sex worker came to the police and told them that a colleague, can I say a colleague for a sex worker? Sure. A colleague who was also in the business worked Hagley Road and she disappeared three years prior. So that would make sense because they were looking at 1941 as the time of death for this person. Mm -hmm. So that looks kind of likely. And the sex worker that she, that is missing, her name is Lou Bella or Bella for short. In 1953, this woman, Una Mossop, she comes to the police to share that her ex-husband, Jack Mossop, confessed that he and a friend, this guy Van Ralt, they put a woman in the tree. Their story is that the two of them were drinking in a pub one night and they somehow this woman ended up in their car and she passed out. And they thought, you know what? She's got a problem. So we're going to put her in the tree to teach her a lesson. I would argue they had a problem if that was their idea. (laughs) I would argue that that's not a great lesson. Can I add something here? Please. I have read some accounts that he was her ex-husband and some accounts that he was her cousin. So I just want to say that I like to think he was both. (laughs) (laughs) I think based on this story, if it's true, yeah, this person ain't right. Yeah. So they took this unconscious drunk woman and put her down a witch elm to scare her straight. This is what happened before D.A.R.E. is what we learned. Um, It did not work. Um, (laughs) Jack Mossop, though... One thing that was interesting is he ended up going to an insane asylum because he had these visions of a woman looking out at him from a tree or he had these dreams that like Mm -hmm. drove him crazy. And he went to a mental hospital and he died before the body was even found, which kind of lends credence to the story. Totally, totally. Yeah, I like Jack for it. Or they could have just seen it and then they put it to I don't know. Either way. What's peculiar and what they discredit Una for sharing was that she waited 10 years before sharing it. Yeah, that doesn't seem weird to me. Okay. I mean, why would she share it? I think she was a little like, I mean, that's her kin, whether he's her ex-husband or cousin (laughs) or both. (laughs) She knows him well, I think is all the same. (laughs) The next story is about Joseph Jacobs. Um, He's a German spy, and they theorize that... The woman in the tree is his girlfriend, uh, Clara Baul. So she apparently was being trained as a spy in Germany, and she was supposed to meet him in England. He, however, was parachuting in in 1941, and he broke his ankle, and he got arrested. He got caught, and he was taken to the Tower of London, um, (laughs) and he was the last person to be executed at the Tower of London. His girlfriend was, like, six feet tall, so not a great... Like not a great match, and also it's reported that she, the real Clara died in Berlin in 1942. Hmm. Suspicious. In 1945, this 
woman, Margaret Murray. I like her. Um, not for it. I just like her because she's an anthropologist, <sighs> an archaeologist it. from the University College in London. And she claimed, dun, 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 witchcraft, witchcraft, the occult, the occult. We love that. We love We love occult. some black magic. So if you remember from the story, the hand was separated a couple yards away from the witch elm. And this supported that it was a ritual called the hand of glory, which I love. So apparently the severed hand obviously supports this. This ritual was said to be performed by travelers. This group of witches performed this ritual um, and apparently one of her arms had was left 13 paces from the skeleton remains, which is like obviously 13 is a fucking spooky number. It was an ancient custom used when a witch was executed. Also, the significance of the name of the tree, which is a witch. Witch elm. Did you have any more information on that one? Um, no, but I mean, I'm going to be a party pooper and say I think that's a real stretch. I think that's obviously a real stretch, but I love when someone, especially a woman, is like, I'm going to say it, that we're all thinking it, but nobody's mentioned it. It was a witch. Not only that, but I looked up this ceremony, Hand of Glory. It involves using the hand and melting it for the fat and creating a candle out of the fat. Which sounds like a really bad, like, Etsy idea or something. But um, that also doesn't seem like it's what happened. It's also on private property. I think that's important to note. But again, a bunch of four kids got on. So I don't think it's, like, really high security properties. Um, The police can explain the hand leaving by an animal that, like, would have taken it. Yeah, that That tracks a little better for me. Agreed. Um, In 1953, there was another theory that it was a woman, uh, there was a Dutch woman named Clarabella Drinkers. Is that her name? Yeah. Clarabella Drinkers. (laughs) I don't know. That's an incredible name. Yeah, because I don't know. Maybe you were Clarabella drinking when you wrote that name. She was a Dutch woman, Clarabella Drinkers. Apparently, the theory is that she was killed for knowing too much. And it was a German spy ring that involved a British officer, a Dutchman, and a music hall artist. And they were like, she knows too much. So they killed her and put her down a witch elm. That is the story, an unsolved story of Bella and the witch elm. Still don't know. Who we were still you, Bella? don't know. We don't know. We don't know. So my story, which is going to be for the next two hours, at least, is the story of <laughs> Jeffrey McDonald. Never the... going to give you up. <laughs> no. Close. <laughs> Close. This story is pretty bonkers which is why i was you know trying to dissuade carrie from telling a story because i'm going to talk for a while but it's just such a crazy story it deserves to be told let's do it Tales let's fucking tell it let's do it okay before i tell it i'm gonna order dinner smart smart um do we just want to do the ethiopian again Here we go. All right. My story is about Jeffrey McDonald. I got my information from Wikipedia, Star News Online. I wrote that as one word. So I was like, Star News Online. (laughs) Star News Online. (laughs) History.com. A really good article in Vanity Fair from 1998 that was called The Devil and Jeffrey McDonald by Robert Sam Anson. And then there's this really great new docuseries 
that is called A Wilderness of Error, which is about a book that's about this case. And guess who wrote the book? Errol Morris, who I totally fucking love. Yes. He's great. He's the guy that made the documentary, The Thin Blue Line, that they used to fucking exonerate a man that was on death row. Like, he is like art to the craziest degree, where he's like, I'm going to make a movie, and you're going to watch this movie, and then it's going to change somebody's life, as in give them life. This is the story of Jeffrey McDonald, who was raised in a poor household on Long Island, He was president of the student council, though. Nailed it. And yeah, he was just his pretty good life. Eighth grade, he meets adorable Colette Stevenson and they get to be friends. And he asks her to the movies, just them. Do you remember going to the movies in eighth grade with boys? Um, I think I saw The Notebook with someone naked. I had a crush on him because he was a Cuban boy and I just watched Dirty Dancing Havana Nights and I fell in love with him. Yeah, it was a big deal to go to the movies with a boy in eighth grade it was totally a big deal you would like maybe kiss i it was, was so thing. afraid of boys i couldn't oh, i broke I, up i my first kiss afterwards i said it felt like worms and i broke up with him the next day oh yeah well it felt like worms too but i pretended to like it i was that kind of girl i always pretend to like it i pretended to like it and then i was so uncomfortable and i felt sick and i admitted it to my mom after i told I was, my mom I was, I was going out with someone when i was in eighth grade and i remember her being like where and I was like, such that's an, what we call it. That's such it. a rigged out. Yeah. Where are you going She's out like, to? She's oh, like, really? Where are you headed? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm, we're, that's what we call it. Anyway, he does start going out with Colette <laughs> in ninth grade, I think. They, the they relationship waited a year. blossomed. <laughs> I do remember, though, my mom being like, go where? And I was like, no, we're going out. And she was like, yeah, where? And I was like, no, we're like, we're going out. It was like a really tragic who's on who's first. On first. Um <laughs> Colette dumps him the next summer, but he's okay. Don't worry about him. Gets a new girlfriend. And he's voted most popular and most likely to succeed. And he's prom king. (gasps) And he's smart. And he gets a scholarship to Princeton. He turns into a murderer. And he's pre-med. All that happens. And then guess who he starts dating again? Colette? Yeah. He goes back to eighth grade girlfriend. Colette? What do you want to know? She's timid. She's shy. She's adorable. So it's kind of like he's like, I'll protect you in this like romantic sort of sound of music Nazi boyfriend way. Mm-hmm. A Rolf, yeah. Um, so he's kind of a hoe, though. He's like definitely sleeping around while he's dating her. And then she gets pregnant and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? The right thing. So hold the phone. Hold my condoms. I ain't going to be I'm a gonna hoe marry no you. Yeah. <laughs> They get married in 63. They honeymoon on the Cape, Avi. And then out pops baby number one, Kimberly. Then they move to Chicago. He goes to med school. Out pops baby number two, Kristen. Then they move to New Jersey. And he does an internship at Columbia. Then in 1969, he joins the Army. And he joins the Green Berets as a surgeon. So they all have to move to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the mm-hmm. fam. You see pictures of the family. The kids are fucking adorable. Kimberly's the older one. She's like kind of shy like her mom, but like a smarty pants. And Kristen's kind of like a more wild tomboy. Colette becomes pregnant with their third child, a boy. Okay, let's let's get to the night in question. I'm going to give you Jeff's account of what happened this night. It's a cold, rainy night. I mean, that part is actually true. His account or not, definitely 
It was a cold and rainy night. (laughs) It's February 16th, 1970. Okay, the next sentence is either going to make you love Jeff or hate him. Either way, get ready for feelings. After work at the hospital, Jeff takes Kimberly and Kristen to feed a pony that he bought them for Christmas. Feelings, right? Cute. I mean, I'm like... You bought them a pony? <laughs> I guess that's maybe normal. I feel like he got his kids what they wanted. My parents would never buy me a pony because, like, they're it's like, so Fuck hard for that. you to I'm get that taking... dog. Yeah, I'm not doing that. My parents never bought me a pony. They bought you a pig, though. They did buy me a pig. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. Okay, so they go feed their pony, and then they go home and shower and get into PJs. They have dinner. Colette's going to go to a child psychology class she's taking, so Jeffrey puts Kristen to bed. He falls asleep on the living room floor while watching TV. Kristen comes down and wakes him up and is like, can we watch laughing? And he's like, yeah. I'm not a crook. Um, <laughs> she goes to bed when the show's over. And then Colette comes home. They have liqueurs in front of the TV. It which is just, the 70s. That's classy. That's a classy. There probably move. was a jello mold at dinner, too. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Aspic. Totally. Um, Johnny Carson comes on and Colette's like, it's late. I'm pregnant. I'm going to bed. Um, he's like, okay, I'm going to watch. So he does. Her and sleep, then, not the show. Yeah, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch you sleep like a fucking psycho. Um, no, I'm like he's waiting for the shoe to drop. I know he's a bad like, guy. He so watches like, her sleep. <laughs> you wish. Okay. So he stays up, watches TV, starts to read. Then he hears sweet baby Kristen crying. He goes and calms her with a bottle of chocolate milk, according to him. And I, listen, Jeffrey, I'm not here to tell you how to parent. No, you thunder up a child's arms off one time. You're, you're no place to question. Who's going to give <laughs> caffeine to a kid that needs to go back to bed? Chocolate has caffeine in it? Of course it does. Not like a lot. I had so many Cokes as a kid. No chocolate after midnight. I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> Now it's late. It's like two in the morning. He goes and finishes his book he's reading. He does dishes. He goes into his room to go to bed. And Kristen's in bed with his wife. He picks her up, carries her to her room. And then for some reason, instead of going back to the bedroom, he goes back downstairs and falls asleep on the couch. She's pregnant. Maybe he doesn't want to disturb her. That's nice. The next thing he knows, though, he's woken up by her yelling, Jeff. Why are they doing this to me? And he hears Kimberly screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He opens his eyes and there's four people standing over him. A black man in a fatigue jacket with E6 sergeant stripes on the sleeve, two white men, and a woman wearing a floppy hat over blonde hair. She holds some kind of flickering light that he thinks came from a candle and she's chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. The black guy hits him on the head with a club, and then he, like, feels something stab him in the side, and he looks, and it's an ice pick that he's been stabbed with. And then there's a struggle where he's wearing pajamas, and the pajama top gets, like, pulled up, so it's, like, imagine it's around, like, his arms, and his arms are up in the air. So he's almost using it as, like, a defensive thing, like a shield, sort of. And it's getting stuck with the ice pick. And there's this struggle. And it's up on his wrist. Then finally, he's getting stabbed. He goes down on the steps of the hallway. Which Jeff is not a murderer. I'm telling you Jeff's story. Okay. The plot will get thicker and thicker and thicker and then burn up. 
So he finally falls down in the hallway that leads to the bedrooms and he passes out. He wakes up and nobody's there. Including his family? Well, no, no attackers are there. He runs to Colette in the bedroom and sees there's a knife sticking out of her chest. And on the headboard of the bed, someone had used their finger to write the word pig in blood. He pulls the knife out, gives her mouth to mouth, but there's uh, air coming out of her chest. Why did he pull the knife out? I don't know. She's got um, one of her breasts hanging out. He kind of like throws his pajama top over her body to cover her. He goes to check on his kids. They're lying in blood in their bedrooms. He calls the military police on the kitchen phone and says, we've been stabbed. People are dying. And he drops the phone. The military police arrive. They find that the front door is closed and locked. The house is dark. When no one answers the door, they go to the back and they see that the back screen door is closed, but the back door is wide open. They come into the house and in the bedroom, Jeff and Colette are lying on the floor together. Um, They kind of think like at first, maybe they're both dead, but then Jeff starts to move. Colette has been stabbed with a knife 16 times. Oh, God. And then stabbed 21 more times with an ice pick. She's also been like hit a bunch in the head with a club or something. Her arms are broken. Probably they were broken defensively. Oh, that's awful. And Je- they turn to Jeff and he's like, four of them. She kept saying, acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. My kids. I heard my kids. Go check on them. So they go into the kids' rooms. Kimberly's been hit in the head at least six times. She's been stabbed in the neck with a knife so closely, like the same place that pathologists can only guess the number of wounds, like that maybe she was stabbed eight or ten times. Then little baby Kristen has 33 stab wounds, 12 in the back, four in the chest, one in the neck by knife, 15 more by ice pick. Her finger was almost cut to the bone, which again was would have been like a defensive wound. Like maybe she was holding her hand up. So that's the story. That from Jeff's perspective. Jeff. There's some things that are weird that I'm going to let you know about. There was no mud tracked in the house. And remember, it was a rainy night. Right. There was like no mud anywhere. Um, they noticed that there's a table that's been tipped over in the living room. And it was kind of like a top heavy table where what was odd about it is they see that it's on its side atop the magazines and stuff that were on it. Which, if you put the magazines on it and knock it over, what happens automatically, because it's top-heavy, is it flips all the way. Like, legs up in the air. Mm. It doesn't land on its side. It lands all the way. Oh, interesting. Every time you knock it over. Okay. So they're like, it looks like someone set this up this way. It's next to a room where there's, um, like, the dining room area has this table with, like, cards, Valentine's cards and stuff on it. None of the cards are disturbed at all. Remember, Jeff said that there was this huge scuffle in the living room. 
yeah. right near where that table would have been, maybe like six feet away I'm like from imagining it. your house is what I'm imagining. Right. It's just the idea that if there's like a bunch of people and like a big fight and you're ne- kind of near a table with uh, like Hallmark cards on it, yeah. it feels like they would be disturbed. They would be disturbed. Or not blood like, splatter, like something would. None of Jeff's blood's in the living room. There's no blood at all of his in the living room. Even though there's blood of his in other places in the house, but none of it is in the living room. And that's where he's saying he was stabbed. Correct. Well, so another thing that's weird is that there's no fibers from his pajamas. I think they find a single fiber from his pajamas in that living room. And that's where all those holes are being made in the pajama top that that gets pulled up over his wrists. Now, you might just be like, well, that pajama top really held together well. But there's dozens, including some underneath Colette's body in the bedroom. Hmm. There's some under Kimberly's sheets. There's two in Kristen's room. One's underneath her fingernail. So his pajama top that's shredded was leaving fibers everywhere. everywhere, Except the place he used it. Except the place he he got stabbed. Also, he said he wasn't wearing that top. According to his story, remember he used it to cover up Colette. He didn't go in the kids' rooms in that pajama top. Right. Once it was stabbed. He took it off in the bedroom and covered his wife with it. Another thing that's a little weird about covering his wife with that pajama top, if you think about it, is now his shirt is covered in his wife's blood. Yeah. He says it was to cover her. It seems like it then really contaminates that piece of evidence as to him having his wife's blood on him. He also, like, lay down next to her, right? Yeah. He also took the knife out of her, right? Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the blood. So one thing he didn't know. How injured is he? According to the surgeon, his most serious wound was a clean, sharp incision in the right chest, which had a, that did cause a partial deflation of his lung. Okay. That's it. There's no ice pick punctures. Really, all of his wounds heal really quickly, and he doesn't require any surgeries. Hmm. Okay. Okay. As far as those weapons go, it ends up they were all from inside the house. So whoever these people are that broke in, they didn't bring any of their own weapons. They just relied on being able to find stuff at the house, I guess, is the story we're going with. Um, It was an ice pick, a kitchen knife, and a piece of wood that was kind of like the size of a baseball bat. They were all found right outside the house, like the back door. Okay, let's talk about the blood now. All of the people in the family have different blood types, which is sort of great, That's also weird. It's weird, but it's great because then the blood analysis really tells you a story, right? Right. Because you can look at the blood and it's not just blood. It's this is where his blood is. This is where Colette's blood is. I don't know that McDonald knew that. Right. He's just thinking blood is blood. But no, this blood was really going to tell us a story. It's a statistical anomaly, but it's pretty helpful. So there's a ton of blood in the bedrooms, including Kristen's blood is in the master bedroom. Okay. 
Why would that be? There's a bloody footprint that matches his foot exiting Kristen's room. There's none on the living room floor. There's only a drop too small to even be typed on the hallway steps. McDonald's glasses had a speck on the front of the lenses. They were near the living room drapes. But he says he wasn't wearing them when he went in anybody's room. But it's Kristen's blood that's on his glasses. What on earth? It's so crazy because he's like, I wasn't wearing them when I went in her room. Why is her blood on your glasses and your glasses in the living room? That doesn't make any sense how that blood would have gotten there. Remember how pig is written in blood? Mm -hmm. It's in Colette's blood. They find a tip of surgical gloves beneath the headboard. So whoever wrote pig in blood wrote it wearing surgical gloves, not just with their finger. Those gloves, the exact same kind of gloves, are in the McDonald household in the kitchen. Now, for some reason, on the floor alongside that cabinet are drops of blood. It's Jeff's blood. Ugh. So why did why is his blood in the kitchen? Also, his wife and two kids. And his in wife his, was pregnant. So in it's his like... story, he went into the kitchen to use the phone, but he didn't go over to the sink to the cabinet where those gloves were, the blood is telling a really crazy story. Remember he keeps saying to the police, I took the knife out of my wife's chest? Mm -hmm. Well, something really weird about that is that they indicate the knife had never been in Colette's chest. There's certain things I'm willing to give a benefit of the doubt only in that you're panicking. You're like, you know, there's like definitely like some stuff like that. But like the fact uh, there's so too much. What you need to know is like his story in no way accounts for so many of the findings. Right. So the theory they come up with is who knows if he watched Carson? Who knows if he even watched Laughing? We don't know. But at some point, he and Colette are in the master bedroom and they get into it. She hits him, he retaliates, and there's this, like, piece of wood that they're using to prop up the bed, and he grabs it, and he hits her with it. He starts beating her with it, and blood is everywhere. And Kristen hears them fighting, and the blood, you know, is everywhere, and she walks in. He, maybe on purpose, maybe on accident, just winding up with that wood block hits his kid in the head hard hard like her skull smashes where he's like past the point of no no return return. she's either gonna die from this wound or have problems because of this wound her brain serum is found in the doorway of the room so what they think he did was took her back to her room and finished stabbing her and then goes into Kristen's room. But when he was or killing... Kimberly's room. Kimberly came in. It was Chris. Kimberly. I'm sorry. No, Did I say Kristen? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Kimberly, the older one, came in. He accidentally or on purpose hit her. What he didn't realize is I think he left Colette for dead, but she wasn't dead. So while he's killing Kimberly, Colette goes to protect Kristen. 
because her blood will also be all over Kristen's room. So he goes in and kills both of them, kills Colette and kills baby Kristen. He wraps Colette's body in a sheet and carries her back to the master bedroom, but that's when he would have left a footprint in blood on the way out of the room. So in other words, it's not premeditated, but after killing Colette and Kimberly, he's like, what do I do? Kristen's premeditated then. Absolutely. Exactly. He had been reading an article. Well, this is, you know, we're hypothesizing this. We're guessing that this is what happened. But there will, remember the coffee table on Mm -hmm. its side? One of the magazines under it is an Esquire magazine. Do you know what one of the main articles in it is about? The Manson murders and how there were crazy people going into people's homes and killing them and yelling pig and being on drugs. So the thought is he had read that story recently and he's looking around at this huge mess he's just made. And he's like, ah, that Manson story. People liked that story. I'll make this that. People believe that that's something that can happen. I'm going to put only on give these gloves credit from for the like kitchen. Fast thinking. Like, yeah. that is insane. Well, so he puts on the gloves from the kitchen, goes and writes pig on their headboard, lays his pajama top, which is already covered in his wife's blood because he killed her, puts it over her, and then repeatedly stabs through it with an ice pick. Then he uses the kitchen phone to call for help, throws the weapons out the back door, messes up the living room he really superficially. too. Right, right. He uses a disposable scalpel to make his cuts between the ribs because he knows there's little sensation there. Remember, he's a doctor, so he, like, really knows what he's doing as far as where to stab himself. So he stabs himself with this disposable scalpel, throws it in the toilet, flushes it in the gloves down the toilet. And then goes and lies next to Colette. I'm like, ugh. So there were some fuck-ups is the issue. Some crime scene fuck-ups. Isn't there always? Yeah. One thing that happens is a photographer comes and is taking pictures of this and gets super upset and is like, I can't. I gotta go. I can't. Like, I think it was really upsetting crime scene, obviously. So another photographer takes over. What that means is we're left with two different series of pictures And we see things like the phone off the hook and the phone on the hook. We see things like that coffee table that had spilled over. We see a potted plant on its side. And in other pictures, a potted plant righted on the floor. So people were touching stuff. People were moving stuff. One of the guys was like, how long are we going to be here? And they were like, we don't know. And he got like, and like sat on the couch. And they're like, dude, don't. There kept being crime scene stuff that was getting fucked up. They failed to collect fingerprints from the children's bodies. Some fingerprints from the crime scene are accidentally destroyed. So some of the bloody footprints. There's a piece of skin under Colette's fingernail. Maybe it was from her scratching her attacker. It disappeared after it was collected. They just couldn't find it. After the military police arrive, um, in some of the pictures, Colette's breast is exposed. But some of it, she's covered up with a towel. So they're like moving shit around. They let newsmen neighbors roam the front yard before the evidence had been processed. Also, they let the garbage collectors empty the fucking trash cans. What ends up happening... Why are people just, like, freeze? 
I know. Freeze. They know that in every other way, shape, freeze. It's so nuts. It's so nuts. Well, so it's the military police. So it's there's going to be an Article 32 investigation. That's like the kind of trial it is. It's basically the military justice system's version of a grand jury proceeding in civilian courts. Okay, that's going to happen from July 6th. To September 11th. And do they accuse Jeff? Yeah, he's accused. Okay. Um, he The defendant can have his lawyer pre- present evidence, and then the presiding officer, rather than a jury, is the one that makes a recommendation on whether to prosecute the defendant after the hearing. Okay. So, obviously, Jeff's testimony, because I think he knows more about what's happening... It's going to contradict what he earlier said. There's going to be some things that are like, actually, I went in this room. First, he said he moved Colette. Now he's going to say he found her a little bit propped up against a chair. And he kind of laid her flat on the floor. He's suddenly like, oh, I sort of rinsed off my hands when I checked my own injuries in the bathroom before I called for help. There was bee blood found in the kitchen, which is his blood. And he's going to be like, oh, uh, maybe I also washed my hands in the kitchen sink for some reason before I made the call. Yeah, the story's changing as he's finding out what they know. There's also a hair found in Colette McDonald's hand that did not come from Jeffrey McDonald. And the defense will also note, like, that there's candle wax in the house that doesn't seem like it came from any of the candles they owned. Yes, they did not find muddy footprints from these supposed intruders, but they'll also note, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a bunch of footprints from us coming in, the military police. Maybe everyone's just really polite and using the doormat, including the intruders. Remember the investigators are like, this is weird that the coffee table. Yeah. Well, so what they realize is, remember, the crime scene got all fucked up. If you move a rocking chair in that room a little closer to the coffee table, it catches on it and does land on its side. Which would explain its position as like it could have happened in a struggle. Ugh. The flower pot being upright in the pictures made them be like, he staged this. But they're like, we don't know that the flower pot was upright in some pictures that's on its side. So the obviously the fact that the crime scene was fucked with will come back to haunt them because they can't prove they can't everything. Prove that it was, yeah. The photos are all fucked up. Okay. What's interesting, and this will come up again and again, is the name Helena Stockley. In February... She's a 17-year-old drug-using police informant who's part of, like, the local hippie community. She has made comments to a police officer saying, basically, she was high that night and can't be sure, but she thinks maybe she was there. She didn't do anything, but she was there. Then there's a 22-year-old delivery man, William Posey, that says he was her neighbor and that 4 a.m. on the night of the murders, he saw a Mustang pull up carrying her and two or three males. Then a few weeks later, she says she's leaving town because the police have been hassling her about her possible involvement in the killings. She also was in the habit of wearing a floppy hat and a blonde wig. But after February 17th, the neighbor says he never saw her in them. So she becomes a scapegoat. Yes, but also like Jeffrey said that there was a woman in a floppy hat. She becomes the woman in a floppy hat lending all this credence to his story. The first witness to testify in the defense is Kenneth Micah. Um, He's a responding military policeman, and he says that on the way to answering the call for help, 
They're driving there and he sees a blonde woman with a wide brimmed hat on a street corner. And he was like half a mile from the house. And he noticed it because it's really late at night and it's raining. So he's like, why is she out there? So that, again, there is like, whoa, was this blonde woman that said acid is groovy, kill the pigs real? Part of me is like... Is that, oh God, I'm just like these children, like your kids. You're, oh. Well, that's a big thing. They're it's like, like what was why, the why, why? What was the motive? Why would he have done I mean, this? The, the convenience, the point of no return makes sense. But like Colette, was there any other evidence of like spousal domestic violence, abuse or anything like that? Not abuse. No, but we do know it wasn't going great. Yeah. Colette had called her mom prior to this happening and kind of been like, I want to come home and be, I want to take the kids and come home and stay with you for a while. And the mom had been like, just stick it out. And then she was dead a couple of weeks later, which that poor mother. Ugh. So the army ends up dropping all charges. No. Yeah. The investigating officer says he thinks that the authorities should look at Helena Stockley. He's basically like, that angle's really worth pursuing. And I see all this weird stuff, but I don't see a motive. Also, the military and police, they want to protect their own. They don't want... I mean, they're going to find any other reason than to convict their own. Not always, but certainly the majority of the time. I Right. I, I mean, that... So Jeffrey leaves the military, moves to California, and he's like, I'm going to start my life over. He starts, like, fucking a ton of broads. Becomes and- a hoe again. But then he's like, you know what? I'm going to settle down with a 22-year-old flight attendant. And this is the show, The Flight Attendant. And this is, yeah, enter the show, The <laughs> enter Flight <Haley> Attendant. Cuoco. <laughs> he starts doing a bunch of actually, like, TV appearances. And oh, he God. goes on the Dick Cavett show. And he is acting chill about this having happened. He calls his wounds on the show potentially fatal, which... They I weren't. guess they were if they got really badly infected or something. And But, like, guess who's watching the Dick Cavett show? Freddie Kassab. Freddie Kassab is Colette's stepdad that raised her. And he has been, like, his original stance is, like, there's no way Jeffrey did this. Right. I love him so much. Um, but... He has, like, when Jeffrey is exonerated by Article 32, that's great news. He's happy about it. But he's like, we do need to find out who did this. We do need justice. So he's been really looking into it, looking into it. And he's been like, hey, can I have the transcript from the Article 32? And Jeffrey's like, oh, they won't let me give it to you. And he's like, oh, well, I'm just going to work really hard to get it. And Jeffrey's like, oh, you know what? Me and a bunch of my buddies, we found one of the hippies that did it, and we took care of it. We, like, he basically insinuates. Oh, God. We killed this guy that, like, one of them, and we're going to keep hunting them and killing them. That didn't happen, to be very clear. Yeah. But that it's definitely weird that didn't he... happen. Why in the world would Jeffrey McDonald have said that to his stepfather? Unless There's you only to stop one looking. reason, yeah. and it's, I want you to stop looking, and I want you to drop it. I mean, you could argue he wanted him to feel better about it, but no, it's like, no. all this time, you really don't hear Jeffrey talk about wanting to find the killers at all. You talk, Freddie Kassab wants to find the killers. That's more like than, way more than Jeffrey does. And it seems like all Jeffrey wants to do is put up a couple roadblocks in Freddie Kassab trying to really look deeper into this case. 
Freddie Kassab will also just be like, things start to rub him the wrong way. Like he hears that um, while at the hospital, he he was like having um, cold duck with a bunch of his Green Beret buddies, which is like a some kind of sparkling wine or something. And he was basically like having Partying. a drink at the hospital with his pals. Wouldn't you be like, I can't eat, I can't drink, my life's over? I know we talk about not wanting to judge how people no, respond. But, well, the some of the some of this is fucked. Well, and when he hears him on Dick Cavett, I think the whole thing rubs him wrong. But when he's like, "Oh, I had really bad wounds," he's like, "I visited him in the hospital, and he didn't. Why is he lying about that too?" So he's looking at the testimony from the case, and he's like, "Wait a minute." One of the things Jeffrey McDonald says is that he tried to give. Kimberly CPR and blood bubbled from her chest. Mm-hmm. Her chest had no wounds. The other weird thing is, and the kids were found on their sides. If he had given them CPR, wouldn't they have been found on their backs? Like he gave them CPR and then rolled them onto their side? No. That's super weird. Anyway, he starts to see a bunch of the inconsistencies we've already discussed and he completely turns against him. He files a citizen's complaint through the United States Department of Justice, which is like, you should go after this guy. I have evidence. The FBI refuses to take the case. And in 1972 to 1974, it's just basically trapped in limbo. And then in 74, a federal grand jury convenes to evaluate it. And they decide that it's worthy of prosecution. So then there's this whole argument that ensues about, like, double jeopardy because he was already found innocent. Can he be tried again? Was he found innocent or was he found that he can't, that there wasn't They dropped the charges. So, yeah, I mean, he sort of was. But I think that what ends up happening is they're like, we can try you again. Because we never tried you in the front. We had a grand jury. Article 32 is different, I guess, enough. They're like, no, we can try you. Sorry. Um, So he's brought to trial. So he goes to court. He's charged with three counts of murder. He pleads not guilty. And it's fucking crazy case. 75 witnesses are called. Jeff also reads his own statement to the jury and says, like, some things that are, oh, don't make you like him. Like, he's like, five long years have passed. Um, And I've had, like, he talks about, like, his efforts to start his life anew. You're just like, I don't want to hear from you in that way. I want to hear... That it's not I want to see that you're broken. He says things like that he was just so, like, drained emotionally and financially. (laughs) You're like, ooh. Like, nothing is rubbing people right. Um, Again, you can't... Just because you're an asshole doesn't mean you committed murder. But, like, dude, five long years. Scott Patterson. The Scott Peterson paradigm. Exactly. But, like, he's five... Who says that? In trial, they play an audio tape that was made... In 1970, when the military investigators were interviewing Jeff, Mm -hmm. and he does, like, this really cold, like, indifferent recitation of the murders that look really, I don't know, emotionless. And then while he's on the stand, he gets, like, crazy defensive when he gets cross-examined. And he'll be like, if the jury finds that this, you know, he does, like, a lot of if, 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 and you're trying to wear him down, but... Jeffrey gets super pissed and it looks like a guy that has a fucking temper problem, you know, like it doesn't look good. He also says, why would you think that a man like me with a beautiful family and everything going for him could have murdered them in cold blood for no reason? 
And it just doesn't come off like sympathetic. It comes off like jerky. They also hear on the tape, police confront Jeff with the extramarital affairs stuff. And he says, oh, says you guys are more thorough than I thought. Oh, because they find out like he basically had at least 15 girlfriends that he would seduce when he was out on his like training missions. And he had just told Colette before this happened, I'm about to leave for three months and be like a traveling physician for the Fort Bragg boxing team. And she's in the final months of what the physicians have told her is going to be like a kind of dangerous pregnancy. And he's like, I'm going to go. It doesn't look good. And so, like I told you, she had been thinking of going and staying with her mom. Prosecutors also will point out all the similarities between the Manson case and this, but not in a way where they're like, see, it's the same people. More in a way where they're like, see, we think he read this article in Esquire magazine and then was copycatting it. They also do this crazy thing where in trial, the prosecutors hold up the pajama top the way that they say he did it. Jeffrey would have. And they have someone come at it with the ice pick, stabbing at it. That is a good prosecutor. So everyone's like laughing kind of like, this is so weird you're doing this. But what they're trying to show is once they're done with that pajama top, there'll be all these slashes in it. Slashes. Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top didn't have slashes. It had perfect holes. It wouldn't have been, what they're trying to show is it wouldn't have been in motion to make those holes. It would have been laid flat and then stabbed like they think that he laid it on Colette and then made the stabs in it. And when it was in motion, not only did it create slash marks instead of stabs, but right away, the guy that's like stabbing it hurts the guy holding it up, like stabs him in the wrist by accident. Jeffrey didn't have any marks on his hands or his wrist. So you're like. If you were defensively had this pajama top up, how did you not get wounds there? It's very odd. I read that the defense, there was a forensic expert that um, said that he wrapped the pajama top around a ham and stabbed it. And that it resulted in the same kind of holes. He had an assistant move the ham. I'm sorry, I should have said. He had an assistant move the ham back and forth and he stabbed and he's like, and it created cylindrical holes with no tearing. I don't think that worked well for the defense. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. The that, moving the ham back and that's forth why thing. I'm saying the prosecutor's great because if you get someone actually doing the thing and that, like... That's the... Yeah, exactly. That's someone who's fucking good at their job. So obviously they're going to want to talk to Helena Stockley. Helena, Helena, who's to say? Helena Stockley denies any culpability in the murders. It's tricky. I don't want to even almost get into her because what happens is over the course of 10 years... She'll confess to a bunch of different people. And at this trial, they're basically like, we want to bring all these people in as witnesses and have them talk about how she confessed to them. The judge will be like, no, I'm not going to let you. Mostly because the judge is like, this drug addict story has changed a million times and she doesn't even know the truth. Her, it, That's how it feels. It almost feels like she's doing the false confession thing where she's like said it so much she kind of believes it. But the stories she's telling aren't lining up with the crime scene either. Yeah. But of course, Jeffrey McDonald's people are being like, it's not fair. You're not letting all these people testify that say that she confessed to them. Right. Does the judge allow it? No, he he allows Hel- Helena 
but he doesn't allow all these people that she told her story to. Um, really, the prosecution really, I mean, looking would... strong, but the only thing hampering them is they still don't really have motive. He has no history of violence and how fucked with the crime scene everything was. Yeah. One of the things that the prosecutor says that I really like is if we convince you by the evidence he did it, we don't have to show you he's the sort of person that could have done it. Yeah. Um, and he also says, I can only tell you from the physical evidence that things do not lie. But I suggest that people can and do. Ooh, don't you love that? I love I thought that, that was really well said. The jury deliberates for six and a half hours and they do find McDonald guilty of second degree murder. In the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and first degree murder in the death of Kristen. One thing that was really troubling, I think also, I don't know whether the jury hears this or not, but I remember from the documentary that they talk about going to the house and it's been a decade almost since the crime was committed and they go to the house and everything's more or less as it was in a lot of ways. Yeah, like you can still even see Pig on the headboard. They left it, the crime scene intact for the most part. Now... At the house still? Yeah. Jeffrey was allowed to take things from the house. And he took like, I think a TV, some things like that that were worth a lot. But they go to the kids' room and there's like pictures that the little kids drew on the wall. and And it felt like he didn't take things that you would take if you were... As a parent, like, you lost their family. Yeah. I remember that from the movie and being, like, really struck by that. That he took nothing of his kids. Yeah. So the judge gives a life sentence for each of the murders to be served consecutively. So he has three life sentences he's going to serve. But then a year later in 1980, a panel of Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals reverses the conviction because they say, look, this nine-year delay violates his sixth amendment rights to a speedy Speedy, trial so he's released after posting a hundred thousand dollars bail and then he's like announces like his engagement and is like guess i'm going back to life his supporters hire a retired fbi special agent and private investigator not ken brennan it's not thank god ted gunderson they want him to overturn the conviction so gunderson contacts helena and she's like yeah me and five people that were part of like the black cult what happened was we got like a big grudge against mcdonald because he had refused to treat heroin and opium addicted people and so we actually went to his house and the primary target was colette and her kids because we wanted to do like a human sacrifice and one involving a pregnant woman is like the best. That's like Satan's favorite thing is when you kill a pregnant woman. So in terms of ranking, she ranked really high, then the kids, but really Jeff didn't rank that high. So that's why he wasn't like a really good sacrifice and we left him alone. We just really wanted him to like write us some drug prescriptions, basically. That was like what we were doing there. You should know that an ex-FBI agent that was assisting Gunderson when he got her to say this told the Bureau that there had been an element of duress in her questioning and that Gunderson had employed, quote, unethical means and tactics. In it. So it, we don't know what happened there, but it doesn't sound like it sounds like she was 
coerced into saying coerced that. into saying something or told she would be given something if she said it or maybe she was scared so she said it but it doesn't sound like it came of her own volition it also sounds like she was put in a position where they were like you have to come up with why you didn't hurt him at all because that's weird so Gunderson's looking around for anybody that will corroborate this crazy story and neighbor there's a neighbor that's like yeah actually i saw a car that matches the description of the stockley car um and i saw her in it and there was a black man in it and i could pick him out of a lineup because i just know exactly what he looks like i remember his like weird eyes so she's racist she was 70 feet away and it was raining (laughs) so she's racist yes (laughs) or an (laughs) x-man She could be an (laughs) ex-woman. Also, remember the 22-year-old delivery guy that was like, I saw Helena. At 4 a.m. getting out of a Mustang or whatever. He fails a lie detector test. Not that we Mm. care. But also then says, I actually wasn't sure about seeing her that night because it might have been a dream, actually. And then meanwhile. So wait a minute. He's a, I just want to say, Jeff is out on bail. Correct. But they want the conviction overturned. Which is different. Oh my god, now you're greedy. Like, you're um, so fucking greedy. Well, so, the Helena starts talking again a lot in this time, and she's talking nonsense is the good news, because she's like, I was there, I wasn't there. Sometimes she can remember, sometimes she can't. Then she's like, I think it was just something that happened in a nightmare. She's going nuts. She starts to say that actually one of the men that was there was an undercover CID, Criminal Investigation Command with the Army. Oh, my God. So her story is nuts. She also then at one point is like, you know what? I actually broke into the house a long time ago and stole a bracelet of Colette's. And that's why I know what the house looks like. I mean, nothing she says makes any fucking sense. And it just gets crazier and crazier. They take a hair sample from her and they get her fingerprints. It doesn't match anything they found in the house or at the scene. Gunderson quits and they hire a different detective. And he's like, ooh, everything makes this guy, Jeff McDonald, look super guilty. I'm going to quit also. (laughs) Not looking good. In June of 79, there's this guy that befriends McDonald, Joe McGinnis. And he's like, I'm going to write a book about the case. And they get to be really good friends. And Jeffrey McDonald is like, they're hanging out a lot. He's hanging out with him at his house. He meets his fiance, Like... They get to be friends where Jeffrey's like, this guy's going to help hear my side and exonerate me for sure. And he's like, I want him to have full access to everything the defense team has. He's part of the defense team. Joe's like, sick. My plan worked. Joe McGinnis is like, Joe McGinnis, I think, thinks he's innocent. Oh. And then gets to know the case really well and starts having panic attacks because maybe he's not innocent. And... It's so complicated, their friendship, because Jeffrey's always like, I'm counting on you. And Joe's like, <laughs> and he's like, can I read what you have so far for your book? And he's it's like, like, still, um, there's a couple typos. And I'm, I'm just a perfectionist. so tired right now. And I just feel like I want it to be so perfect when you finally look at it. He's like me in high school. If anybody was like, I want to like make out with you. Like, I'm so tired. I just want to be perfect. And I just can't. I just want to be great for you. And I can't be right now. <laughs> so he, in the end, releases this book, Fatal Vision. That definitely portrays Jeffrey as guilty. In fact, it sort of portrays him as like a sociopath. 
that is narcissistic and horrible. And <laughs> good he friend also details an incident people didn't know about with an ex-girlfriend where he yelled at her kid while they were on a boat and said he wanted to crush his skull and then threw him off the boat. Um, but it also Wait, alleges... he yelled at a girlfriend or he yelled at a friend? A girlfriend's kid. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. It also kind of like postulates an idea for why this might have happened, which is that Jeff was regularly taking this amphetamine, Escatrol, which was to lose weight, and... He thinks that it caused him to have, like, a psychotic rage, essentially, and not be able to control it. Gary Cole plays Jeffrey McDonald in the movie Fatal Vision that they make for TV. Who's Gary Cole? Oh, my God. I'll look him up because you'll be like, oh, yeah, Gary Cole. Anyway, Gary Cole, who's quite handsome, plays Jeff in the movie. Oh, my God. Yes, of course. Yeah, Gary Cole. Love that guy. But even though Gary Cole is cast... Jeffrey McDonald still sees this as a total betrayal, and he's devastated. He actually sues <laughs> Joe. I mean, I would be like, that's kind of nice. He sues him, which basically, they there's a mistrial, then they settle out of court for like $300,000, but then Kassab steps in, the stepdad, yes. and is like, uh-uh, and cites some like inheritance clause, and basically, short story, Jeff only gets 50000 So, in 1982... The reversal of the conviction is appealed and denied and appealed again and goes to Supreme Court. Basically, there's just a series of years where they're like... It just depends on who the judge is. It's it's flip-flopping all the time. And it's like... This is why it's important to vote. So you get judges in that do the right thing. Well, so it goes to the Supreme Court. In 6-3, they find that his right to a speedy trial... Court or the state Supreme Court? Ooh, I don't know. Okay, well, it gets to a Supreme... It probably is not a a federal crime. court. They rule 6-3 that his rights to a speedy trial were not violated. He's rearrested. He goes to federal prison. Yes. Get back in there. And his original sentence of the three life sentences. Okay. Yeah. They're like, that's reinstated. There's like a bunch more appeals, but ultimately that ruling is held and his medical license is stripped. So not only is he in prison, but no one even like calls him doctor anymore. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Speaking of doctors, one of the more recent appeals, which was in 1992, the doctors who were hired by the defense who worked for the army or like the they worked at Walter Reed Hospital, they concluded that he was psychologically incapable of committing such acts of violence. What? And, and they're like, we should have been able to say that at the trial, that he was psychologically incapable of it. But then they're like, well, it wasn't an insanity trial. So actually, it was fine that the jurors never heard that. Also, can someone actually say with 1,000% certainty that someone's not capable of that? No. First of all, no. But they were just mad that the jury didn't hear that. Right. And then they're like, um, they shouldn't have. That's not what that case was about. Um, then in 1997, they grant McDonald's motion to file a supplemental affidavit with the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. Basically, this affidavit says... Look, there was a couple of sarin fibers found at the crime scene that didn't match any item recovered. And they were probably a doll, but they seem like they might have been a wig. And they could have been a wig, which would go with my story about a wig. So they do this testing in December 2000. And Jeff and his, like, cohorts are like, please let this tie Stockley and her boyfriend to the crime scene. And it doesn't work out. (sighs) 
They find a single hair in Colette's palm, remember? Mm -hmm. And they're like, it was maybe one of the intruders. And it turns out that it was actually from Jeff. (laughs) So it doesn't go that well. And I think they that takes like forever, like years to figure out. Then in 2007, they file an affidavit on behalf of Stockley's mother, who's like, oh, I'm old. Before I die, I want to say that I think my daughter did it. And she told me she did it twice. And I just need to get rid of this, like, information. Oh, and the prosecutor in this affidavit, they're like, the prosecutor should be considered unreliable because he was actually later convicted of fraud, forgery, embezzlement, and he was disbarred. But I don't know if that matters. If you're a lawyer, I think there's a rule or like, and they're like, you ha- you're, you're, um, legally you're allowed representation. And if your representation is compromised, then you haven't been required. You haven't. But it's not his, it was the prosecutor, not the defense. Yeah. But so I think like you the can prosecutor have, prosecutor ends like up a being, mistrial, right? Well, I'll just tell you the motion is denied. Yeah. Thank God. So then he does another fucking appeal. <laughs> Um, where they're like, oh, there's this retired deputy marshal that overheard Helena admit to the prosecutor that she was present at the McDonald house at the time of the murders. And then the prosecutor threatened her and was like, you're going to go to jail if you say that. So she got scared and didn't say it. But they're like, listen, we need to stop talking about Helena. So that motion's denied pretty much, too. Listen, basically, like, we fucking keep, Helena. They're like, we cannot keep talking about like, this I can't woman. Clarify She's, how many more fucking times. This was not Helena. Then there's like a bunch more. Like, I couldn't do this. Even though I was going to do a whole episode, I still was like, I'm not going to write down every time this was appealed and denied because it's psychotic. But it's this pendulum. Wow. Where it's like appeal, denial, appeal, denial. I mean, he's really fighting to get out. Helena dies of pneumonia and cirrhosis in 83. Mildred and Alfred Kassab, the parents Mm -hmm. of Colette, they died in 94. And actually, this is so sad. In 71, Mildred gets breast cancer. And she basically is like, I just want to die. I'm so sad about my kid and my grandkids. I just want to die. Jesus. But Alfred is so like, we have to see this through. We have to see McDonald brought to justice. And you have to help me. And so she does radiation therapy just because of that oh god and then before alfred dies he records a message and he says i want this to be played at any future parole hearings for jeffrey mcdonald and in it he says i just want to be sure that he serves his sentence the way it should be served and i don't want him walking the streets so he makes like this tape wow McDonald is to this day serving his life sentence at a federal prison in Maryland, and he continues to say he's innocent. The McDonald name was removed from Colette's grave from her tombstone. It now just has her maiden name on it. But that's the case that's of so Jeffrey McDonald. Dark. It's so dark. It's so sad. I just like infanticide. I, well, one like... thing they say in it, in the uh, you, I really recommend this, um, that Errol Morris, because he thinks that he's innocent. So it's really interesting documentary because it's not from his perspective. The book, A Wilderness of Error, is he wrote, but this documentary is about him writing that book. 
but it didn't compel me to think he was innocent at all. And I don't even know that Errol Morris actually still believes it. He kind of like hesitates when he says it. It's Is not... it like the Joe McGinnis kind of thing where he's like, I'm going to go in, say this guy is innocent, and yes. then he gets and more information more he and he's like, about oh, it. fuck, that's actually not the case. Yes, it feels like the more, I think he feels like his trial wasn't that fair. I think he feels like some things were not fair in the trial. And that makes him want to expose those unfairnesses. But I I don't know that that's wrong. I I definitely see where they have issues with with the judge not allowing certain pieces of evidence or testimony to be made. I understand that. But I just still think um, there's just so much that points to his guilt. And I just think he's a psychopath. Like when I see him in interviews, I'm like, this guy's horrible. He did it for sure. His story, I mean, there's no evidence to support his story. And there's so many things he did to try to stop people from finding out more. Yeah. That that just bothers me. The fact that if there if your whole family was murdered in cold blood and you just move on like that, it's just something's not right. His wounds are also superficial. And he says he almost died on the Dick Cabot show. Yeah, that. Oh. What really bothers me, and they talk about this in the documentary, is he killed Colette in a fit of rage, and then he killed Kimberly as part of that rage slash an accident, maybe, and then was like, holy fuck, what did I do? And in that moment, he definitely had a choice of leaving Kristen alive and didn't. And the decision to kill her is like probably the part of this case i find the most jarring and upsetting about his self-preservation it's like the it's like just pure self-preservation in the way where Kristen saw anything like i don't even believe she was a witness against him i just believe truly this is the part that makes me sick i just think he was like that's simpler that's cleaner that's an easier story to tell and that's where i'm like that's why you killed her whoa your child and his wife was pregnant yeah fuck i mean who's beating their fucking pregnant wife anyway like go to hell if you are if you're fucking go to hell pretty rough oh wow anyway it's um one of those cases that people still are like did he do it did he do it and i'm the way you presented it spoiler alert he did it guys he did it and you guys know that i said i don't think that scott peterson did it and i've said that um i don't think burke did it or, or the parents. I have unpopular opinions in favor of people's you do think innocence Paige all the time. You, think, you do think Paige Bergfeld's husband did it? Is no. Is it the woman? Who's no, I Bergfeld? Don't. She's the one that um, had Fell the double the wife. No, that's not that. Oh, okay. Newlander. Leslie Newlander. Newlander. I do think the husband did it in that husband case. Anyway, I'm saying I have the ability to see it both ways in these cases. I'm not always the husband did it. But in this case... The husband did the it. The husband fucking did it. Ugh. Thanks that for sharing. blood evidence is just too compelling. You and it's I agree with with Blackburn that it's those things are telling a story and the blood is telling a story. Dexter would say that. The blood doesn't lie. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Do you want to go eat dinner? I would love to eat dinner. I mean, dinner. should we say anything that's not murdery at the end of this? Um join Patreon. We have a new episode coming out soon, so do that. Yeah, join Patreon well, if we had you haven't new, already. Before, if you join Patreon right now, you get all of our there's now gonna be as of the time this is out, we have seven teeny tiny creep creeplies. So that's at the very least 
three and a half hours of yeah. more content. Oh. Oh my god, what do you think is happening <gasps> oh up there? God. Oh my god. We guys. must go and blackout. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, scary. Let's do that. Okay. Uh,